0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen.
1: VoiceOver on.
0: Settings. So you can navigate it just by listening.
1: Books. Contacts. Calendar. Double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11.
0: And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.
2: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we react to the news that Chelsea have sacked their manager Thomas Tuchel and predict Graham Potter replacing him in the role. What will Potter bring to Stamford Bridge? And was it too soon to dismiss Tuchel after winning the Champions League? Speaking of which, a poor result this week for Liverpool in the competition. We'll also speak about how Celtic and Rangers got on Spurs and Manchester City prepared to meet in the Premier League this weekend. And we'll discuss the start of the new WSL season. All that and more on this episode of The Game. Hello and welcome back to The Game podcast. Hope you're all well. I'm Hugh Wisencroft. I'm alongside Gregor Robertson. Tony Cascarino, the former Chelsea striker, is here, as is Molly Hudson. Tony, we've got to start by saying congratulations to Joyu Anniversaire. <laughs> Happy 60th. That's why you weren't with us on Monday. Did you have a good, a good time enjoying yourself celebrating?
1: Fantastic. I went to northern France, La Touquet, which is beautiful, played golf, fifteen of us. Um I won the golf as well, which made it they, even better. They let you in. Uh, they let you in too. Uh, yes. Um, but I had a really good time. Great fun, good good food. Yeah absolute brilliant journey yeah not the 60 getting to 60 but the last weekend
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: fantastic fantastic glad you enjoyed yourself we missed you so happy that you're back because we have to discuss your former club this is where we start Chelsea sacking Thomas Tuchel it was the new owner's 100th day in charge after their third defeat of the season that came in the Champions League against Dinamo Zagreb but a lot of people left asking if it was too soon Thomas Tuchel won three trophies during his twenty months in charge, including the Champions League, of course. A club statement, though, said the owners believed it was the right time to bring in a new head coach. Chelsea currently sixth in the Premier League, three wins, one draw, and two defeats so far. Also only had three wins in nine in all competitions at the back end of last season. But having spent over £250 million this summer on players like Sterling, Aubameyang, Fafana, Koulibaly, and Kukurea, like I said, was it was it too soon, Tony?
1: Was I surprised? Not really. Um I think you know, wealthy owners who invest so much and I saw them against Brentford at Stanford Bridge when they lost four one, saw them at Ars against Arsenal at Stanford Bridge when they lost four two. Everton away wasn't particularly great. The Leeds performance this year, you know, they're all games, you know, relatively in a short period from where we are today and um and I thought after the way he spoke uh, about his team because he questioned his team's desire and hunger and I thought well that's not an honest assessment of your team because I wouldn't accuse Chelsea players of you know lacking the desire motivation to play a football game I would have said there was a lot wrong it wasn't that so no I wasn't that surprised I know I know it made major news when it broke and everyone seemed to be so shocked but you know there's something <laughs> Owners act very different from what we say is the normal reaction. That they tend to be a bit more decisive when they think they need to make change. They make it pretty quickly, and especially at big football clubs. You
3: okay, Gregor? What was your reaction to it? I was definitely surprised. I think with the when you kind of you pick the pick the bones out of it a little bit more, it it does become you know almost something that both parties probably will walk away from and think you know it's probably the right decision almost because Tuchel was. Tuchel was starting to be a real kind of cantankerous, miserable, mm. <laughs> and as Tony was saying, you know, he was he was really digging out his players quite often, quite frequently, and you know, sometimes it was deserved, and sometimes, as Tony said, maybe not. And you know, you know that's not a good, uh, that's a bit of a slippery slope as well. So I don't know. If you just kind of look at, I think the owners, the 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 new new owners of the club, have like acted like they've got a shiny new. Train set, and they spent all summer going around looking for gleaming new parts. And they're giddy with excitement. And they've all the t- all the while they've had a misery guts in the dugout, <laughs> and a misery guts in front of the camera. Yeah. And, and every time a microphone's put in front of him, he's been a misery guts. And I'd think that he's kind of bummed them out a bit, really. And that's it. I don't know fair. that sounds very simple, mm-hmm. but I think they are really excited about buying a club of the size of Chelsea. They've got, you know, a couple of billion pounds worth of blank checks burning a hole in their pocket. They've got, you know, Tuchel on the other hand has got to explain to them why it's not a good idea to sign Ronaldo. I think it probably just, it was a bit of a clash. Tuchel's so used to having people with expertise above him. All the people he'd worked with at the football club have left. And suddenly he's got to explain you know, he's got to play a big part in recruitment and explain to these, you know, giddy yanks why why Ronaldo's not a good idea. But don't, don't you feel for him because of that? I do. I do a little bit. I think it's... Look, I feel... You've got to look at his 18 months. It's been remarkable. His first six months were incredible in that he won the Champions League. He turned a pretty shambolic defence into the best in Europe. He's reached three cup finals. And then Russia Russia invaded Ukraine and suddenly he's been asked questions about geopolitics and he's the mm-hmm. face of Chelsea. A frozen football club, and then there's an interminable, interminable takeover saga, and it's just going on and on and on and on. And then the guys who come in don't really have any expertise, and he's has to do more more jobs than just being the the head coach. You know, add to that, you know, I think he's had some problems going on in his personal life in the background since he's moved to London. I honestly think you will probably walk away from this and go, you know, this isn't the worst thing that's happening to me.
1: I think this is a fair question as well. What do you think Roman would have done if he'd have been still in charge? Would
2: you have been surprised if he had sacked him? Well, this is the thing. I said at the end of last season, had Roman Abramovich been in charge, yeah. he would have got sacked in the summer. But obviously his response hmm. would be we wouldn't have had such poor results at the end of last season had Roman Abramovich been in charge and the club, as Gregor pointed yeah. out, hadn't had assets frozen and we didn't have the the geopolitical situation. So it's one that I it's so hard to answer. Mm -hmm. What would you say, Tony?
1: I think very likely, yeah. I mean, Roman, I think he quite openly or his team openly admitted when Jose came back from the second time that they held on as long as they could, but wanted to sack him earlier and felt it was a mistake. And I think they ended up when they lost against Leicester and it was about November time, Roman Abramovich decided to pull the trigger. Now... He's done it way quicker to other managers, so it's a tough one. And and Gregor was absolutely spot on. You have to give him the whole length of his time at Chelsea, what he achieved. But there, and just adding to what Gregor said, sometimes there's nothing worse than having a miserable manager going in day in day out of you know just feeling a negative vibe, and you need you need a relationship with your team and your colleagues. And I didn't feel that was very good.
2: Molly, what's your reaction to everything going on at Chelsea and, and Thomas Tuchel sacking? Was it fair or was it too soon?
1: I think,
4: uh, kind of echoing what Tony said, really, I wasn't all that surprised and I don't imagine Thomas Tuchel was either. I think what maybe surprised me is the timing um, because, you know, Tom Roddy wrote a fantastic piece on this for the Times about the fact that the writing was kind of on the wall from, from sort of pre-season onwards. It was quite clear that... Um, Tuchel was was close to the likes of check Marina Granoskaya, and then they left, and obviously his role changed. So there was there was numerous things that have kind of gone on over the summer, um, as Gregor mentioned, everything that happened with with Roman as well, that have kind of contributed to this. But I just feel a bit sorry for whoever does come in, and you know whether it's seemingly it's going to be Graham Potter, because the recruitment was still very much. Tuchel's involvement in it because of the way his role changed. and someone like Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang coming into the club so, so recently. I think that's the bit of it that surprised me, the kind of lack of joined-up thinking. It was logical, perhaps, you could argue, to get rid of Tuchel for all of the reasons that we've discussed. But then it wasn't logical to continue down the same road with the signings that they've made. Because then if somebody like Potter does come in, it suddenly becomes... A much more difficult task than if they had pulled that trigger earlier on and he had himself more of a say in what went forwards or they just held off a little bit and then waited arguably until january to make some of these bigger moves with a new manager at the helm but it was yeah, i think regal said that you know they had that money buried in their pocket didn't they and i think it is a little bit of inexperience maybe just the way they've gone about it but then i suppose We've we've seen plenty of owners across the Premier League that have made seemingly equally baffling decisions in terms of recruitment and then getting rid of the manager. So I suppose... In that sense, um, the new Chelsea ownership are just following in the footsteps of uh, plenty of other owners that have a lot of money and a lot of say and maybe make some questionable decisions based on that.
2: Okay, we've had our say. Let's uh, hear from the man himself. You mentioned him a few moments ago there, Molly. Tom Roddy doing some great writing on this in the Times. So check it out on the Times app right now. But I did manage to speak to him late last night. He's had a very, very busy day and asked him, started by asking him just how he'd found out the news of Thomas Tuchel sacking. Well, how
5: I found out was stepping off the plane from Heathrow after coming back from Zagreb, where there'd been that humbling defeat to a club that was so, you know, really essentially minnows in the Champions League for that kind of competition. And of course your immediate reaction is to think wow is it, was it was it that bad but Heathrow arrivals the cafe nero you'll find there became my office for the next five hours and then i started making calls and you've discovered this is this had actually been a plan part of the plan long before yesterday and actually uh bizarrely in a way especially when you consider the transfer window that they've just had and Thomas Tuchel's control on that. I mean he'd been a significant part of of the 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 recruitment this summer. It actually the the small cracks began to appear. I think it was July 24th it would be the date which was in Orlando when Chelsea were playing Arsenal and of course got thumped right at the end of the pre-season. And it was the way that Tuchel reacted to that game. It made Boley and the rest of the Chelsea hierarchy start to think perhaps he's not the guy that we want to be taking us forward. And of course now we're at the stage very quickly where Graham Potter has emerged as the the favourite and my understanding is uh, tonight is that he's in advanced talks and essentially it's it's his job if he wants it there's a release clause that they're willing to pay which is about 15 million pounds that includes his three members of his backroom staff so we're really at the stage where it, it might even be a surprise if he wasn't on the touchline at Fulham on Saturday.
2: Right, you've taken me right from the start of the story to the end there. I only asked you how you found out, Tom Roddy. I mean, <laughs> very thorough. Thank it's you very much. It's been one of those days, it's been <laughs> one of those days. Listen, let's go to, to a little bit of the building blocks on the way, because I'll take you back to you saying the Chelsea hierarchy realising that, that Thomas Tuchel might not be the, <laughs> the man to take them forward. We could look back at results from the end of last season. That might be a, a contributing factor. I, I'm not personally sure he handled the, the situation well with all of the Roman Abramovich situation with the UK government, the freezing of assets, etc. I felt there were some excuses during that period of time for the, for some of the results. Do you think that weighed on the mind of the, the new Chelsea owner, some of the, the performances from last season? Or, as many people are saying, was it really soon in the season, especially with all the new signings, to be dismissing your boss?
5: What's quite interesting, Hugh, is comparing that period with the sanctions with Tuchel to this period where he has looked very stressed and he's been very emotional and unpredictable and quite prickly in the past, well, ever since the beginning of the preseason tour really in LA and you compare that to when he was in charge and of a, of a team that had sanctions placed on them they were trying to work out whether they were going to be driving to games across europe or being able to pay the players and at that moment he was a picture of calmness, um, which, when you compare it to now, is 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 quite remarkable. And and, I, and actually, I think that reflects the real reason in what's happened here, and that is this: that Tuchel was so comfortable and so happy in the old regime. He spoke about the small group; it was him, Marina Granovskaya, and Petrzek. They were they were the allies who worked together and basically ran Chelsea during the time that Tuchel was there. And of course, this summer, Bran of Sky leaves, is essentially forced out, Czech decides to go, and he loses those pillars of support. And he has to work with a far bigger group with a bigger role that he didn't want to have. And it just feels that Tuchel was, was really quite married to that old regime and and was not on board with this one
2: i've got to ask questions about todd bowley what do we say you know i don't usually call him the owner of chelsea because he's not actually the majority shareholder but he's had such a huge influence at the club clearly since becoming the interim sporting director and he managed to get some big names in the club spent a hell of a lot of money as well and has a, immediately got rid of of the manager a champions league winning manager at the club no less so what do you make of this decision and what do we learn about him so far as, as as a the influence rather he's got over the club what we've learned from this decision is a little bit of a
5: continuation of what we've learned over this summer really and that's that's that there's no time to waste they they these guys take decisions immediately and a very decisive Tuchel gone, the players they signed this summer. But with Bowley's kind of role in all of this, even Tuchel was kind of explaining how difficult it was for them all because they were thrown into this situation where none of them had had been involved in the football transfer business before. They'd worked together in, in the sports world with the LA Dodgers, but never this they've had to find their feet and they are having to find their feet very, very quickly. But there was always the plan to get to a hundred days and evaluate where the things that have gone right and the things that have gone wrong. And in the things that have gone wrong bracket, there was, there was a few things, Ruffinia, the Rafinha transfer was one of them, or the, or the lack of a Rafinha transfer was one of them, but the standout was, was Tuchel and, and the relationship with Tuchel and the way that deteriorated over the past few weeks and, and months, and, and they decided to, to bring it to an end. But one thing I'd say as well, Hugh, is that Potter feels like a little bit of a gamble to me in a way, it, I get I get it, it makes sense because he is one of the brightest coaches around and promising as well in his excellent style of play. And you can see him being a great coach for many years to come he, and you can see it happening potentially at Chelsea. It's just that it's not proven at the moment. We, we, he's not a proven top level manager in Champions League. And it's and it's very different managing characters at Brighton and Hove Albion and Swansea City and Ostersons to managing the guys
2: that he's going to find at Chelsea. Is he the right fit, finally, Tom, though? I mean, I just find it, you know, from everything we know about Graham Potter and everything we know about Chelsea and what we've seen so far under Todd Burley, it just, does it fit? I mean, does he get the time, in your opinion, that he would need to really develop this Chelsea team and be a great success. Is it a good decision?
5: Yes. Right now, yes. And part of the reason I'm saying that is because everything I'm hearing is, is this point of stressing we are not continuing... The previous era at Chelsea, where it was very trigger happy, and man, there was a revolving door of managers, and and they were seen as the removable object, weren't they? This appointment is one that they want to be long term. These, this Bolian, the hierarchy, they they admire clubs like Man City and Liverpool, and part of that is the the dynasties that Klopp and Guardiola have created there and that's what they want to do at chelsea and of course you could say that most premier league clubs most clubs want, would want to do that they don't want to be hiring and firing all the time but it says something that they're going for someone who has a history of doing that he did it at osterson's and and he's doing it at brighton and and he's a safe pair of, uh, well, safe pair of hands in terms of a reliable progression. That's what his his career has shown so far. I would be fascinated to see the list of controversies. That have surrounded Graham Potter's career because it wouldn't take long to get through <laughs> to get through them because they're just there really aren't ever any. I was thinking about the comparison to Tuchel where, you know, the the handshake at the end of the Tottenham game, Graham Potter would never, ever do that. And
2: this is why I've got question marks over whether he can handle Chelsea as a football club. But we'll come on to that with Tony Cascarino and the guys. At next, Tom Roddy, thank you for joining us on the game. Great information, appreciate it. Tom Roddy there. I think casting our eyes forward a little bit then uh, as to who might be in the dugout next for Chelsea. And I think it is just about agreed as we talk here on Thursday morning that the Brighton boss, Graham Potter, will become the new manager of Chelsea an English manager in the Champions League, no less. (laughs) He led Brighton to a record high finish of ninth in the Premier League last season. Tony, I want to start by asking you if you think he is ready for a job the magnitude of Chelsea?
1: Well, that's a completely different challenge than managing Brighton, which is pretty obvious. Um, look, he's been a pragmatic manager and, he, and the style of play. This year, they've been slightly more free scoring. But if you take their last two seasons, 42 goals and 40, you know, in their two campaigns. And I've watched Brighton numerous times and, and have always felt that, yep, yeah, Exactly, really, you know, to be a team that stays up and gets mid-table is an incredible achievement. And they they seem a more attack-minded team this year. So he seems flavour of the month. And don't get me wrong, I love to see people given opportunities that normally doesn't happen for them. But it's a different challenge, completely going to Chelsea Football Club and expectation to be challenging on every front, dealing with much bigger players, uh, and the egos of bigger players, because that is a challenge in itself. There is a part of me that I want to give every him every opportunity of, of being successful, but I think it's a big jump going from Brighton to Chelsea.
3: I agree that you know the last bit that Tony said there about you know he's never dealt with bona fide stars. Chelsea players know as well as any players that managers are far more expendable than they are. So if they don't, you know, he has to get the buy-in. We speak about that quite frequently and, you know, he has done it, but he's done it with a team in Ostersund and sort of, you know, rugged Sweden um, and getting them to perform Swan Lake and things like that. It's a different, (laughs) it's a very different thing to to Chelsea. And so is Brighton. I want to see him given this chance and I want to see him succeed and I... That's that's just my kind of instant reaction. It, it, it's it's obvious there's a kind of an understandable kind of feeling that you it might not make a happy marriage because it's Chelsea and it's like it, it's sort of a clash. He's he's all about culture, the human touch, a project, you know, all those kind of human values. Being a head coach, even at Brighton, where it was he was he was just one part of a well functioning sort of structure and and uh, machine. Chelsea are just the, the antithesis to all of that. their money bags, their ego, their uh, success here and now. Uh, so you think instantly doesn't really make a good marriage, but we also don't really know what the the Bowley Clear Lake ownership envisage for Chelsea. We we you know that's what Chelsea have been, and all that we've seen so far under them in this short period sort of <laughs> is kind of following on from the old the old Chelsea, same old Chelsea. But we don't know what they want them to be. They might want to give someone five years, and you know say. Build a dynasty. But all the things about winning here and now will not change. No matter whether they want that to happen or not, they ha- he has to, he's going to have to win to some extent, at least, to be given the time to, to succeed. I just hope he is given that time. You
1: imagine the end of the season and Chelsea didn't make the Champions League. I mean, you know, it's very likely that he wouldn't be the manager thereafter. So mm-hmm. it's really difficult. Big clubs, and I played for a few of them in my career, there's a completely different mentality and about having to be successful. You know, you're a Man United fan, you've seen change. The difference between, say, Fergie, what he achieved, he was a winner in Scotland, but the difference was that Fergie came with a very attack-minded game style that he produced year after year, and all his players were, you know, great, just effectively technical, brilliantly fast-forward you know, just an attacking team. Now, Graham Potter doesn't design his teams like that. He's very much a counter attack and does it very well. But if you're not being successful and you're playing quite a mundane style at times, I've come away from Brighton and thinking, oh, I don't know if I could watch these every week. I appreciate they're really, really good at certain things in the game with their formation, they're set up, But I think, oh, I don't know
2: if I-. I. I see Brighton as, I always describe them as like a two touch football team. Like they're so neat. They're so nice to watch. They're so pretty on the eye. It doesn't always go somewhere and it doesn't always lead to exactly, a goal, yeah. right? It's a well-coached football team. Molly, do you think, just going back to sort of what Gregor mentioned there, whether this would be a, a good relationship, does Graham Potter match Chelsea? Is it the right club for him? What do you think?
4: Well, I just want to pick up on something you said there, actually, about, you know, it it doesn't always have that outcome. And I watched quite a lot of Brighton last season, um, went to a few games at the Amex. And it's strange how much timing plays a part in football, because if you had had this conversation a year ago, um, quite a few of the Brighton fans actually were, were getting a bit frustrated with, with watching that style of football, which was very nice. And obviously Potter has always been hugely respected across the league as a very good manager. But as a fan of Brighton, it was quite frustrating that they didn't manage to score that much. There'd there'd be games where you'd go and watch them. And and as Tony says, I have to agree, you'd think, oh, I'm going to watch the same. You kind of knew it's very predictable. You knew what you were getting with Brighton, the way they played. And it's probably taken until the back end of last season, the start of this season, to really break through and to get maybe the results that Brighton deserved for their performances, which they didn't always get. You know, they were at some point in that relegation battle, weren't they? And I think it's quite interesting that this job has come up at this particular time when Potter's stocks are on the rise, I suppose. And I think that did that play a part in in getting rid of Tuchel? Did did they look that far forward? I'm not sure they did. Um but I think it's very interesting in terms of whether Chelsea will be used to that style. I remember um, periods under Frank Lampard when the Stamford Bridge crowd kind of really struggled to watch the football, and they had like a bad run of results at Stamford Bridge, and they they did get on their back quite quickly. They used to they used to winning games, and I think that's what will be really interesting those those expectations both as a manager in terms of what he will need to do in the background in terms of communicating with the ownership, which is a very different setup to Brighton, but also the expectations of the club in terms of winning, in terms of, you know, as as Gregor said, it's, it's the most respect to the world, very different to do that at a top end Premier League club than it is what he has experienced so far. So I think it will be interesting to see if it has been a case of perfect timing that, his stocks are on the rise, and he's going to go on and kind of accelerate his development as a coach at Chelsea, or, or if this is almost what he's going through at Brighton, the the result of the perfect project, I suppose, that's coming to fruition, and he's going to obviously be starting again from from scratch at Chelsea, which is a is a very different proposition.
3: The one thing I would say about his his football is that it it creates chances. Like Brighton are always pretty high up in the XG tables, and I know you know know, you've got to take it sometimes with a pinch of salt. And Chelsea can miss chances too, but his football dominated possession and created goal-scoring opportunities. They just very often didn't have anyone to put them away. So that's you know I I know I know what you're saying about his football, and but I think he's take it's going to be taking such a step up in the quality of his player, uh, the quality of players at his disposal. It's quite exciting actually to see where it can go from here if he's given that opportunity.
1: Interesting. I, I agree with Gregory because, like as a player, when you up to go up to another level, and there's players, many players, we could list a huge list of them and go, well, they've gone from League Two to League One, got to the Premier League and continue to do really well. Same for a coach. Yeah.
3: <laughs> no, I've, it's been going through my head. Look, this is a very different level. I, <laughs> Chris Wilder and Alan Nil, they, they they were my managers, at uh, uh, my co- coaches, sorry, at Northampton Town in League Two. And I remember speaking to them after they went to Sheffield United and they did a lot of the same stuff that they did with us, but they were doing it with better players and they got to the Premier League. And it was like, these guys can sort of enact our ideas. Yeah. <laughs> Don't want to be cold about it, but you always couldn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they wouldn't just seen that just to me, but that's the truth of it. You know, it, managers c- can improve by the people around them as much as a player improved on the pitch by the t- players around them.
2: Yeah. The one thing that I would say, though, I think the style of football with the the quality of player in the Chelsea squad, if they're good to watch like Brighton are good to watch, they will get results because Brighton currently get results. And they have got a lot of big results against high quality teams and managers. The only thing that I would say is when I was thinking about Graham Potter, when I was thinking about going into a club like Chelsea, a team like Chelsea, everything extra that comes with that, you know, it's a high profile position in the world of football. And I was thinking about the other managers that have jobs like that. And two words stood out to me, arrogance and aggression. And I didn't know if Graham Potter had the same levels of arrogance and aggression that people like Klopp and Guardiola and Conte do. And I, I thought immediately about Mauricio Pochettino's relative failures, if you like, going to Paris Saint-Germain. And I always felt well, he's he's almost too nice to cope with the level of egos in that Paris Saint-Germain squad. And this is a weird question to ask, but I do feel like... Graham Potter might be currently too nice. That first press conference, all I want to see is stick your chest out, right? Be as confident as possible in explaining your own abilities and what you're going to bring to this job because the PR machine works for other coaches in ways it hasn't yet worked for Graham Potter, right? That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying he's not a good enough coach, but it's a perception. I talk about football being about perception a lot, and, and I think it will... It may hinder him, especially in the early stages at Chelsea. That's all I want to say. Yeah. He did the right thing in growing a beard. He changed his image. <laughs> quite. He changed his image a little bit. He got a little bit more grown yeah. up, yeah. a little so bit a more mature. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if he's going to be a suit manager, whether he's just going to go for the old merino, whether he's going to get the stripes on the sleeve like Scott Parker. I don't know what he's going to do, but he needs to do something uh, here. So, do he?
1: you think he needs both arrogance I, and? I do, aggression. I, do yeah, I, I do, I do.
2: I think you need both, and I don't mean that by the way in a, in a bad way. What I mean is, when I say aggression, what I mean is. They are very confident that my way works. Yeah. If I get sacked, play my way. That's I'm not fine. sure about no, he is. So, th-
3: yeah, exactly. I think what he is he's self-assured, and he doesn't have to change who he is. What he has to, what he might have to find is a ruthlessness, because mm-hmm. there might be people who don't get aboard his bus, mm-hmm. and he might have to bomb them. See, Joe's that's something that'll be different. So we don't know. Maybe he has shown that i mean he, he he cast aside neil mopai sometimes when he didn't when he, when he could have yeah. for fairly small misdemeanors that's the only thing off the top of our head we don't know what goes on behind the scenes and i'm sure a lot of his stuff is about bringing the collector together bringing you know be, being being a good guy basically yeah. it, i agree there's one thing i agree with you is he might have to find a ruthless but, but, edge but, but, but
2: i think the difference is when you're a manager and you're selling your project and in the, in the jobs that he's done so far it has been about getting somewhere and it's been about an upward trajectory. And he's been on an upward trajectory as a coach. And his players have been in the clubs that he's coached have been. He's going to Chelsea. The players in that squad are staying at the top. They know that. The club itself is staying at the top. Mm. They know that. There is no upward trajectory journey. It's win trophies or you leave. Mm. So you're, there's there's no the only thing you can sell to the players mm. there is we're winning trophies. He hasn't won any. So that's what I mean about that yeah. level of almost a arrogance. Like, Well, arrogance can be a dangerous to, thing to, when you haven't won it. But, uh, but, but I mean arrogance in, in the best possible sense. Yeah, okay. Like knowing yourself and being conf-
3: truly confident in the role. It might be then about that it becomes about how we do it. It might be about the way they do it. That might be the sale. It might be like, you know, I think I would say that Pep Guardiola will always talk about the way that, you know, Pass the ball. More passes. More passes. Mm-hmm. You know, that's it's about the way Manchester City do it. It's not just about winning trophies. They want to win trophies, and he thinks that's the best way of doing it. But a lot of it is about our play. They talk about he talks about the way we play a lot of the time. That could be the thing because Chelsea haven't really had that. They've won trophies. They've had some, you know, enormous successes. But just, it's been about doing it, no matter how you how you do it. Now it might be about the way they do it.
1: We haven't even mentioned poor old Brighton. Where are they left with eh no manager? And Billy Gilmore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah,
2: cool. Uh, the only thing that I would say about Brighton is... I will fine. I, I heard an interview, and I'm sure it was on a fantastic radio station called TalkSport, um, <laughs> with their ownership group about their future planning around Graham Potter, but also other elements of the club. And they basically said, we've always got a plan. And with him, we kind of know we're going to lose him soon, soon enough. Like, someone will soon come in for him yeah. in a job that we know will be irresistible for him. And they said, we constantly review who our first, second and third choice will be based on what other managerial changes are currently taking place, but also the stock of other managers. So the the main targets, they say, will always be realistic. And they, they were bringing people who they've already done their due diligence on character, on yeah. commitment to the role and on style of football that they believe will be a pretty seamless transition. So I'm intrigued to know who they appoint. But whoever it is, and it might be a name that we've never heard yeah. of. Could be. Um, I believe that they will get a coach in who will take them forward. Because I think that, that, listen, I tweeted it yesterday. I think Graham Potter, and I said it at the time, he's been at one of the most stable clubs in, in European football. You know, the trust that they have in him, the support that they give to him, the realistic way in which they view the world of football to move to Chelsea, you know, for me, I, I almost said he needs assurances from Chelsea that they're going to be a stable club going forward. I've got more faith that Brighton will be okay after this than Graham Potter moving to Chelsea. That's all I would say. I'd so, agree. So we will see. We will see what happens. But congratulations to Graham Potter. You know, it might just be, look, as I've said before, what? That's It's going to happen. Okay. I've just read the Times app, Gregor. I have just read the Times app, which says... Graham Potter is just about to agree to become the new Chelsea boss so can I not congratulate the guy of course you can okay all right congratulations to Graham Potter if you're listening to this and Mauricio Pochettino is the new Chelsea boss (laughs) uh, you might as well skip to the next episode all right okay Uh, listen plenty more still to come we'll be looking back at the big week in the Champions League of course we will the start of the WSL is on the horizon we'll also look ahead to a huge game in the Premier League this weekend stay with us on the game
0: You're listening to me. Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times.
2: In the Champions League this week, Liverpool's relative woes continued with a 4-1 hammering in Napoli. The Reds were 3-0 down at half-time. The performance underlined, I think, a very different Liverpool this season to the one that we have come to expect. Jurgen Klopp says they need to reinvent themselves. We're going to come to what that might be in a few moments' time. But, Tony, what is the problem for you with Liverpool right now?
1: Wow, that's an incredibly difficult question to answer because what I witnessed last night was pretty extraordinary. And it's a bit of Groundhog Day as Liverpool have fallen behind very early in a game. Mistakes littered with mistakes. I mean, individuals. I mean, I. there was one thing that really bothered me in the game. Liverpool went 1-0 down. I think it's about the 20th minute mark. and Trent has got himself on the edge of the 18-yard box. A midfielder's got the ball, and I see Trent literally in the centre-forwards position. Now he's the right back. Now, there's mistakes that you're doing in the game, individual ones, where you you give away the ball, you're out of position, I get. But Trent Alexander, as we know, is an attacking fullback. But you cannot be centre-forward in this moment. Now, Joe Gomez, oh. so many mistakes... Uh, his worst game in the country mild for Liverpool, you know. Take alongside Van Dyke's in this, you know this season. Uh, this season has been very, very poor so far from him. The one that gets me because I think he's one of Liverpool's greatest ever players is Andy Robertson. I'm seeing him make mistakes, and he never. I mean, whether you could argue he played way too much football last year, and he he sort of feels like he's not quite on his game, and he's he's been substituted quite a few times for Liverpool in recent weeks uh, in their Premier League matches, and it feels like 90% of the team apart from DS and probably Allison are playing to their normal standard or slightly better. You go to the other areas of the pitch and Mo has just not got going. Not I mean his touches got away from him. I'm I'm seeing things that I would have never imagined Liverpool players are doing and there's not one or two there's six or seven and that is the problem.
3: Is there an explanation for it Gregor? <laughs> it's very hard to explain it because they have been at such a high level for such a long time and that in itself could be the explanation it's like everything good must come to an end and I don't know if, I think we're maybe slightly too soon to be saying that but um, it's getting it's getting pretty worrying and that you know that Joe Gomez was like he just wanted them to be out of his misery there was a, a, the little one too he just like he looked like he was sapped of all energy he just didn't want to he knew he had to make the 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 run the run to follow the one two and he just didn't have the energy to do it and then you know so there are individuals like that and then it can kind of spread as well that's the truth when you you don't have the confidence in the people around you then it sort of it alters the way that you play so <laughs> the, the other thing is sorry quickly is the is the number of times that Liverpool are just being played through by with one ball now and you know we've spoken a lot about their their high defensive line and you need. You know, we saw when Van Dyke was injured and missing for a, such a long period of time that that really affected them in itself. And now that Van Dyke is not at, playing at the, that level, at his peak level, perhaps not, maybe even like half a yard slower than he was, they're being caught out. They're being caught out by by simple balls through now. So like that that's a bit that's a major concern because they either need to change the way they're playing or the I don't know what the other answer is because if you don't have it, you rely on individuals to be. Really on the ball at the top of their game, and athletic enough mm. to cover to to chase players in behind and to be able to cover and to be quick enough. So you know, canati 's injured, Matip's always been que- slightly questionable, and Van Dijk is not the imperious figure that we've seen for so long. So I think they need to look to change that to be better. I, honest. I
1: wanted to ask Gregor this this problem that I see, and you talked about there. You just touched on the one ball that can literally open up Liverpool. Now, what do you do with Trent? If Trent, We always know he needs attack attacking full-back or wing-back. We know that he loves to get forward. But isn't there a time that it's so irresponsible that he's getting in areas that it completely ruins the setup of the team, the shape of the team? Because Trent was playing everywhere and nowhere. You know, so many times this season down the left side and Liverpool fans will tell you that, you know, Trent has been caught at the far post by Mitrovic oh. at the start of the season and other opportunities have been created. But last night, Trent felt like he would i oh, play where I want to play. And no more. I mean, I'm watching the game and thinking, Trent, and Klopp hasn't sort of gone I'm taking you off. You can't you can't be where you are. I know you're attack minded. I know you want to be creative and be adventurous in the in the forward line. But honestly, watching Trent last night, and I love him as a footballer, but you cannot be that irresponsible.
3: The only thing I'll say is that you, you, we don't know what his instructions are because w- one thing from watching, actually, that struck me in the Premier League in the, la- in the opening weeks of the season is the number of fullbacks backs that, that, that are playing very differently now and that they're forming sort of overloads and rotations with midfielders and, and wide players. Arsenal have spoken about, it, Zinchenko. Even uh, Manchester United's goal uh, against Southampton Came from that a, a similar sort of move where Dallo had moved into the forward line almost, and then Sancho had gone and De Lange came out wide, and he combined and he got the cross in. And so, you know that that seems to be a, f- a feature of fullbacks' play these days. So Trent Alexander-Arnold we know can be such a threat in att- an attacking sense. I just come back to the same thing again. They, you then need proper elite defenders at the top of their game who are able to cover and do the job on their own almost. We've said this so many times before. If you're Liverpool centre half. You basically need to be like as good a one v one defender and as good an athlete as there is in European football. And the problem is they don't have any defenders that look like that at the moment. And Molly, what do you think their issue is?
4: I think just looking at the the starting midfield for me last night, you've got Harvey Elliott, who is obviously a, a fantastically talented player, but he's young and he's you know he can't be expected to be the best player on the pitch every week. You're not going to get that from a from a young player still developing. You've got Fabinho, who obviously is has been fantastic for Liverpool so we'll let him off but James Milner is 36 and is starting for Liverpool in the Champions League and I think it's obviously not his fault that Liverpool for all of their fantastic recruitment have seemingly recruited a huge amount of of injury prone midfielders Um, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain who you'd be forgiven for forgetting was actually still a Liverpool player Thiago even struggled with with injury since he's been at the club. Obviously, Naby Kater, another one that, is, that is, it almost feels like he's been injured more than he has played. And I think that's the problem, really, when you do have such, as, as you guys have just mentioned, when you do have such a focus on the defence, they need that real comfortable midfield in front of them. And I think that's where they've really struggled to 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 kind of how many times do we say in football that you need to get hold of a game in midfield and that midfield never did last night. And I think that is an area that is actually exposing Liverpool more and their defence. For example, if you've got a good midfield that should know that Trent likes to make those runs forward, you have somebody that covers more, whereas quite often recently it's felt like there's just no one there, and I think you know, Fabinho has been fantastic, but he can't do it all on his own. And I think, really, maybe they they should have strengthened more in that area. It was all just a bit, just a bit predictable. When when you look at that, is that starting midfield three good enough to be a Champions League contender? No. And I know that there's players that are injured, but they're, they're players that you'd almost expect to be injured at this point because they've injured, been injured so often. And they brought in Artur obviously in the the transfer window, but um, and he came on for Elliott last night. But you know, is is he the, a big enough signing? Should they have gone gone all out for a really big midfielder and maybe got got rid of some of those players that are quite injury prone? I think for me, that's just. Causing more focus on the defence, who quite clearly last night had a had a pretty poor evening, but they weren't helped by what was in front of them.
3: Uh, One other thing that struck me watching this last night was that you know there was for a long period of time we've spoken about Liverpool's front three and the kind of need to regenerate it, and then they were kind of caught on the back foot by Sadio Mane's departure, and Firmino just doesn't look like anything like the player he was, and Salah. Yeah, look, we I think we mm. still expect Salah to hit heights again. We spoke for so long about how they've actually prepared well for this. You know, bringing Luis Diaz Jota was sort of has been a hit. Generally speaking, yes, he's missed games with injury, and Darwin coming in, we you know we expect him to to be a success. But I think just it kind of it's hit home again how remarkable that front three were, mm. and how um, really it's going to be almost impossible, I think, to to replace their output. And in both regards, so it's not just in terms of the goals, and it's the the way that they press from the front as well. Mm. I think it's just what you know the way Liverpool play. It is quite a kind of finely tuned system. They need if if there's not pressure from the front, then it exposes the back even more. So it, it you know, I just think that we kind of we will slowly come to realise how remarkable that front three were, and I don't think. I don't think whatever Liverpool do to replace it is, is going to be quite the same, to be honest.
2: Tony, finally on, on this, Jurgen Klopp says they need to reinvent themselves. What would you do?
1: Well, reinventing himself, look, it can't be that dramatic. He believes in his style and he's been very successful in having a, an attack-minded side that would always try and hurt you and try and win games. He believes in the way he plays. Uh, reinventing himself, I, I think he would really means tweaking slightly Liverpool. Not so much because... And Molly touched on the midfield. The midfield has been decimated. And, you know, Curtis Jones hasn't kicked on as well if you want to add another midfielder in there. When Marnie went to buy Munich, I so wanted, and I'm not trying to be smart in the hindsight, but I so wanted Liverpool to try and buy Josh Kimmich uh, and use Mane as a bit of a, you know, broker in the deal and go, because Josh Kimmich is exactly what they need in midfield. Someone who can control the game like a centre of the squash court. And add. I I was... Lost when uh, I got a little bit upset when they like, let Vanaldrum go. And I know it didn't pan out well for PSG, but when they had Vanaldrum, Henderson at his best, Fabinho, and Tiago look, Tiago's huge loss anyway, because the one person who's never going to give it away easily is him. And they really have missed him. But there is a lot wrong at the moment. You know, we've talked about defence, midfield and forward line. How bad can it be if you're talking about all three? At least the goalkeepers. Well, exactly. So how bad is it? You know, it's dreadful at the minute. And uh, reinventing himself, going back to your point, Hugh, I think he just has to tweak it slightly and uh, hope players, because whatever we say in all of this, Players are making mistakes mistakes we can't even recognise when you're watching Liverpool.
2: Yeah, okay. All right. Well, listen, Jürgen Klopp does have to find an answer to that. Elsewhere in the Champions League this week, though, uh, listen, I've got a Scottish football correspondent for the day in Gregor Robertson. I've got a former Celtic striker with me. So let's just very, very quickly touch on those two teams from the old firm. Celtic uh, Celtic just showed, I think, the fine margins of a club like Celtic in the Champions League, a night like any night at, at, at Celtic Park, it can go their way if they don't take their chances though it can just go the other and really they could have been 3-0 up and they ended up 3-0 down against real madrid it was just one of those nights it could have been one of the best nights ever and it just wouldn't go in the back of the net and then they got hurt and
3: it, it was one of those wasn't it yeah no they were look the first half they were outstanding they you know created some brilliant chances really kind of on the front foot um and that's what we expected from 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 postecoglou's uh, team it's it's there's only one way to play. There's only one one way to approach it and and you know, I actually after the game you've got some confidence in in the way that you know, that they'll they'll be able to at least take the game to, to the other opponents in the group. It's just that Real you know, Madrid are the, the Kings of Europe and they and they demonstrated why. You reminded me, by the way, who I thought this is a while ago, who I
2: predicted would replace Graham Potter at Brighton and well, I, I think he's gonna start
3: to be <laughs> he's gonna start to be in the running for for Premier League jobs, absolutely. Uh I'd be very sad if he if he didn't want to see through the Champions League campaign at least. And you know, he's 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 done a remarkable job. So absolutely I think he will be in the in the reckoning soon. Uh as will some some of Celtic's players, to be honest, you know. Um I love watching Hattati play. He's just like a little kind of little maverick, a little schemer. Um and Jota as well. That little that that switch play and first time for a chance in the first half was was majestic. So there was some really good play, absolutely. But then it was just, as we said, it was it was it felt eminently predict predictable what was coming in the second half, and it did.
2: Rangers beaten four 0 for the second time in a matter of days. They're outclassed by Ajax after that old firm thrashing at the weekend as well. Would you have any concerns for their side at the moment?
1: obviously they lost the whole firm game 4-0 as well and Celtic are in another level from from Rangers at the moment. That's quite clear. Ajax have let go so many players. You know, they sell players on, they are moving, but the conveyor belt just continues. And I wasn't surprised they got beat. 4-0, it's been a dreadful uh, last week, 10 days for for Rangers Football Club after the success of getting to the Champions League group stages. Um, And just one thing, can I just mention one thing on Celtic and the Rangers game, um, Real Madrid game, I thought was really interesting. It's the worst thing for Celtic is that, yes, they had their chance and they didn't take them, but they're playing against the team certainly the best in Europe about managing games. And they do that brilliantly, Real Madrid. And that's when you talk about different levels of why, Okay, we've suffered, you haven't taken your chances, then we punish you. That's Real Madrid in a nutshell. That's why they're European champions.
3: Even then, though, you kind of watch them sometimes and think, well, hang on, this is a spell where you're not managing the game that well and they still don't seem to concede a goal. Yeah, that's it's it. been remarkable in the last few years. Last or year. Courtois pop up with a wonder save. Mm. Something happens. They just have like an aura about them, don't they? In yeah. this. And then, you know, Modric just kind of pulls the strings and scores another goal in Scotland with, a, with the outside of his right foot. Mm. So 36, yeah. or 37? Modric. Something like that, yeah, yeah. yeah. But but what I
2: what I did see from that game, and, and I think I expect it at Ibrox as well, it will be a different prospect playing Rangers at home in the Champions League, Absolutely. and it is a very difficult prospect going to Glasgow to play Celtic in the Champions League as well.
3: Absolutely, I mean watching the watching the, the kind of scenes before kick off, the you know the billowing smoke from the flares—it it looked like a like a an atmosphere in Turkey or something. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. was like you know you know what I mean—that kind of really rich rich European heritage. It's... Absolutely, you know, and then you saw Modric tweeting about it after saying this, that was a special atmosphere. It is pretty special, and it's the same at Ibrox. It's it's raucous. It's it really does kind of rock you to your core. So that's where you need. That's where Celtic and Rangers will need to get points if they're going to have any chance. Okay, but no concerns, Gregor, for Rangers at the moment under Van Coast? Well, what they need to do is actually get back on track now in in the SVFL, and and I think they've got Aberdeen next, which is not going to be an easy, easy game, and they need to they need to kind of make sure it's not going to be a, a mini crisis um I, look i wouldn't say there's concern i was surprised you know tony said once i was i was surprised because rangers record in europe has been remarkable and uh, this was something different they weren't they weren't at it in the first half in particular and that's what I mean, they just need to get back on track now before before the next Champions League game comes round.
2: OK, we'll discuss Spurs and Manchester City in the Champions League at the end of the podcast because they meet in the Premier League this weekend. So stay tuned for that. But remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, just hit subscribe. The Women's Super League, the WSL, returns this weekend and it's expected to be a pretty big season. Plenty of bums on seats after the special summer for the Lionesses, of course, who are also into the World Cup with minimal fuss. Molly Hudson, I know you've been following England this week, but now it's time to quickly turn your attention to the WSL. And there are some big stories to talk about. We're going to start with Manchester City. Kira Walsh. Off to Barcelona, but there has been a bit of an exodus at the club as well. So before we we actually talk about the league season, what's going on at City right now?
4: I think there's a lot of departures in isolation that make lots of sense and wouldn't be cause for concern. But unfortunately for Manchester City, they've all happened in a very short space of time. Um, If you take Jill Scott, who is obviously retired, Ellen White, retired, Lucy Bronze, moved to Barcelona. Kira Walsh has obviously gone with her, who I'll touch on in a second. Georgia Stanway has gone to Bayern Munich. Caroline Weir has gone to Real Madrid. I mean, just listing those players, apart from Jill Scott, they were all starters. And I think that's the real struggle when you have a 22-game season in the Women's Super League. It's very short and, for example, Arsenal only lost once all season last campaign and finished one point behind Chelsea and missed out on the title. And I think where you've maybe got a little bit more time in, in, for example, the Premier League to bed in new players, you you really, really don't have that in the Women's Super League. And I think that midfield area is a particular cause of concern for City because Stanway, Weir and Walsh made up that that starting midfield and all three have gone. I think there were several bids rejected from Barcelona, and Kieran Walsh has is, is, is now is now gone officially for a world record fee, around the the four hundred thousand mark, which I think in the end City felt like they couldn't turn that down. But it's that old sort of yes, they've got that money, and that's fantastic, and you know from my point of view Keira Walsh completely deserves that I think she's right up there with the best midfielders in the world but it's all well and good having that money but where do you find a a player that replaces Keira Walsh or, or even replaces some of those other midfield departures in a day essentially you you have to think that they, they planned in, in some circumstance they must have kind of decided internally if Barcelona offer a certain figure then we'll let her go but You know, they've got, today is transfer deadline day. Um, So they've got very limited time. I think it, it, I understand that Yui Hasegawa is going to come in from West Ham, who is a very good midfielder, but I just think they've just lost so many. But the the caveat to all that, how, how can you blame somebody like Kira Walsh, who is one of the very best in the world, from going to play at Barcelona, who are, we'll probably win the spanish league again quite comfortably we'll be right up there for winning the champions league when manchester city for the second year in a row lost in pre-qualifying to real madrid you're not going to keep the best players in the world if you if you don't have serious champions league ambitions and unfortunately for city they've been very unlucky in getting real madrid both both years and i just think in that respect you can't blame the players and is it a crisis it probably is but it's also a, a crisis of circumstance in a way, in terms of the reasons these players have left, and also a, it, it's the perfect storm really with the with the start of the season on this weekend, and they're playing Arsenal on Sunday. So I think they I think they're going to struggle in the early weeks. They've they've brought some decent players in, but just to get all of that to gel in a very short turnaround because that pre qualifying meant. We um, spoke to Alex Greenwood while while we were in Austria with England and she said that they literally hadn't had time off. They'd had like five days since the Euros because they were back in for pre-qualifying. So all of that is working against Manchester City and I think at some point a club of that size that they will be looking at that manager's role and thinking is Gareth Taylor the right person to, to take us forward knowing that they need to win Silverberg.
2: It's a big first weekend. You mentioned the game between Manchester City and Arsenal. Chelsea faced West Ham. Spurs against Man United. Host of great fixtures. Check them out. Get to your local game if you can. Uh, most of the games in f- uh, taking place on Sunday, in fact. So, you know, get down there. But I do have to say, when it comes to Arsenal and Chelsea, the two teams that vied for the title last year, do we see a repeat of not only the fact that it'll be these two teams going for the title, but the same levels of quality? Do you expect that this season, Molly?
4: Yeah, I think so. I think it is, uh, and I appreciate this may age very badly because the ball hasn't been kicked yet, but I do think it is a a two-horse race for the title again. I think the Champions League race will be fantastic, actually, between Manchester United and and Manchester City, given what we've just talked about. I think Manchester United have a decent chance of qualifying for the Champions League for the first time. But I think in terms of that, that title, Chelsea have made moves in the transfer window, particularly for me. I'm really, really excited to see Kadisha Buchanan in the Women's Super League. Um Was fantastic for Leon for so many years. Has that real winning mentality, that experience. And I suppose if you could pick an area of Chelsea that has been a weakness, it has been their defence. And the, Emma Hayes has really gone out into the transfer market and strengthened that. So they'll look to push on, but I also think... Arsenal having made a, a much more low key transfer window they brought in Lena Hertig to, to give some more options in the front line but they've been quite stable and sometimes that's in real comparison to Manchester City sometimes it's it's good to have that stability it's it's Jonas Odevo's second season they're a lot more used to what he expects the style of play now and I think they're a lot more aware of just how important it is not to drop points unnecessarily. As I say, they only only lost one game last season. So I think it will be, you'd have Chelsea as favourites again for me, but I think it will be another one that goes right down to the wire.
2: And just finally, huge season for women's football in the country. Of course, we're building up to the World Cup. We want to keep all eyes uh, on women's football after the success of the Euros as well. But the WSL is now going to play a big part week to week. Um, do you think it will capitalise on the, the great summer that we've had?
4: There's been a huge uptake in, in season tickets right across the league. I mean, a club like Aston Villa, who who doesn't even have any Lionesses, is, is, you know, 200% up on their season tickets. Clubs like Brighton doing really good work. So I think in terms of the initial impact, I think it will be quite sizable. Manchester City Arsenal that we mentioned on Sunday is is sold out which should be a new record at the City Football Academy um that's a 7000 capacity Arsenal women have sold 40,000 tickets for the North London derby towards the end of the month at the Emirates which would be a new record for the uh, for the division in terms of attendance so i think the early signs are that it that it is actually making a difference in a way that it hasn't before it's always been very boom and bust England have always even going back to the 2015 World Cup, then 2019, there has been an impact from the international team, but it's died off very quickly. Whereas this time it does feel as though perhaps because it was a home tournament and obviously England went and won it, they did as much as they possibly could. I think it will have a real impact this time around. And now it's just making sure that that translates right across the season. And then, as you say, the the World Cup is in the summer. So, you know, time to go and win another trophy and make another (laughs) kind of um another statement i suppose
2: yeah okay all right we're already thinking about lifting the world cup why not you've got a dream right it's going to be a a great season in the wsl make sure you follow all of molly hudson's writing uh, on the times app we're going to turn our attention back to the premier league next so don't go anywhere Two sides with routine wins in the Champions League in midweek are up next. Let's speak about Spurs first. Richarlison uh, with his first goals for the club in their 2-0 win over Marseille. Erling Haaland got another two goals for Manchester City in their 4-0 win in Seville. But they meet in the Premier League this weekend at the Etihad. And Spurs will be confident, their fans and their players, after winning both home and away against Pep Guardiola's side last season. So, Tony, should City be concerned about the visit of Spurs this weekend?
1: Absolutely. Um, You touched on last year, but if you look at their records this year, both four wins, both two draws, both on 14 points, 5.30 kick-off on Saturday night. Spurs will have an idea, and their idea will always be the same. They'll try and break the lines and try and get in behind with them far. Kane does this role better than anybody else, where he just drops into the space, sort of in the middle of the pitch. If he gets on the ball, he turns. He then looks to play a through ball between the centre-half and the full-back areas, and that has worked brilliantly for them. So it would be more about what Pep Guardiola will do to try and counter it, which has worked against them. Because Spurs have done that really well against City. it um, at start of last season and then obviously done at mid-season. So I, I think it's a really intriguing game because there is something very different about Spurs' team this year. They've got off to a good start. They look like a side that's going to be, you know, what, they conceded five, I think, this year so far. For, so we, we know Conte's team are always really good defensively. So, yeah, it's a huge test, especially after, you know, Champions League week. And uh, I think... Calling this one is is tough because Haaland and City are just looking like an absolute machine, but this will be a very very close game.
3: Yeah, no, Tony, I think Tony's absolutely right. Is that that's the you know the chink in, one chink in, in Manchester City's armour is is uh, the counter attack, and and this is a Spurs team set up to be ruthless in in that approach. I just want to I want to see them kind of showing the same bite as well. I, you know, show, like acting like they are competing. With them, not just in this one game, but you know they want to go toe to toe for the rest of the season, and and uh, you know i i i expect i expect it to be a tight game. I think i think Tony's right about you know, Holland has been ridiculous. It's it's pretty scary. But the way that James Gearbrand actually wrote a really good piece about this um, in la- in the last few days, the way that Tottenham are, are condensing the middle of the pitch, in particular, where they've got the the back three and the two kind of holding midfielders, they are one of the best for for. Reducing the quality of shots that the opponents um, get off against them, basically. Since since Conte's come, I think I think Spurs have gone to the top of the table basically for the quality of shots they face, and so so they're they're re- you know they're reducing the number of good chances that the opposition get, and 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 um, that's you know they've not been well they've not been in scintillating form by any stretch. That bodes well. If they're strong defensively, then they've got enough quality. They've got more than enough quality on that counter to to score goals.
1: Yeah, that 2-2 draw at Chelsea where they were really poor and Chelsea didn't punish them. And okay, there was some big decisions that went against uh, Chelsea on the day, but they still showed a resilience that, has to be there for them to have any chance of not only Champions League football, but trying to challenge for the title.
2: Molly, would you you make any tweaks to that Spurs side going away to Manchester City?
4: I think it's it's quite interesting that we talked about that Liverpool front three earlier on, but we're very used to having a, a settled kind of Tottenham front three. And I think Richarlison has, has come in and really mixed that up. I think it'll be very interesting to see... Now, with the the transfer activity that Tottenham have made this summer, there's now, I think, it's probably two key positions that I would look at going into this game. Who who comes in? Because for me, I think richardson has got to start. Who who comes out? Is it Son or is it Kulishevsky? And then also the, the wing-back position with um, Perisic and, and Sessignon is a really interesting um, debate, obviously one very much at the start of their career and and one coming to the end of their career but both offer very different things and I think it will be interesting to see what what Conte does in those decisions for me I think and this is not something that has been said very often in, in the past few years but I think you might have to drop son if it was me making that decision. I think Conte may very well not do that and think you know it's a it's a big game you you rely on your your big players to step up in those moments and perform, but I think Kuliseski just offers something really different for that tottenham front three he he's a little bit more physical, and I've been really impressed with him since he came into the english game um So, yeah, I think think that will maybe make a big difference as to how that balance works with Richarlison going forward because I think what he's done off the bench and what he did in the Champions League in in midweek kind of makes him the one that you have to include in a way, obviously, alongside Harry Kane. So I think those decisions could make a big difference how Conte really gets the best out of that squad depth that he has now because against City, you know when you get those chances, you've got to take them and can you risk having a, a player in Son who is who is out of form and quite low in confidence at the moment?
2: It's a huge call, isn't it? I'd probably stick with Son just because of the relationship with Kane. But I know uh, Richarlison would, you know, get a good half an hour in this game if I was Antonio Conte. Sessignon is who I'd probably start at left wing back for the counter-attack counter-attacking speed and the left-footed balance. But I, I do think you need to keep them interested on that right-hand side, the, particularly the right full-back of Manchester City, whoever does start in that area, because because I think that they can punish you there as well. And, and it's important on the counter to just press Manchester City back as much as you can. But I do think this Tottenham side is just turning into an Antonio Conte team. They're very much now built in his image, which means there is a role for a Richarlison. Just a little bit of (laughs) S-Housery. Away from home as well. Get the fans going. Get everyone in a bad mood. And then, you know, he'll he'll sneak in with a little back post header, won't he? And he'll just do the celebration. The Tottenham fans will love it. And that'll be a perfect win. But I do think they need... I, I almost feel like they do need to win. Because the Chelsea game they sent a message to the rest of the league and we spoke about what message would they send in that game. Well, they sent a message that they're, they're good, but not great. And if they go to, and I know they've won away at City before, but they could send a message this weekend with a win that they are truly, you know, whether, whether they're playing well or not, you've got to take Tottenham seriously in terms of the title race. If they can win away this season, I think that does change the mindset massively.
1: You do love, oh, I, I, I feel this with Conte. He loves to have a player that's going to rock the boat. You know, like Richarlison, who's going to unsettle other players and put pressure on their place. The big point I would say, if you stop Kevin De Bruyne, and which is a very difficult thing to do, and if you're having two holding midfielders, make sure that he doesn't get on the ball that often. I think that's a big weapon in stopping City because he's the one, for me, that always will find Haaland uh, with his, I mean, he's done this with numerous players, hasn't he? He's done it to, with Sterling and Aguero in the past. But if you can stop him dominating the play in the middle of midfield, it gives you a great chance of getting a result.
2: Quick predictions then, Gregor
1: Naro City win, Tony ha- Harlan, two goals again. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I City would have win. said three City win, yeah. Molly?
4: Tony has stolen my line there. It's definitely (laughs) definitely going to be a a City win and it's going to be Haaland, isn't it?
3: It's an easy prediction. It's open goal every week now, isn't
2: it? I think this one's going to be tight and I think it might be a draw. Another entertaining one. I'm going to go to all, I think. So we'll see. We will discuss that on Monday. Of course, we will. The big game in the Premier League and all the other stories to boot. Thank you so much, Gregor Robertson, Tony Cascarino, Molly Hudson and Tom Roddy. And to all of you for listening, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you're listening. And also make sure you check out a Time subscription right now. TheTimes.co.uk forward slash The Game or download the Times app. We'll see you on Monday.
0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen.
1: VoiceOver on settings.
0: So you can navigate it just by listening.
1: Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11.
0: And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.
5: Small details or big surfaces? Tight corners or odd shapes? Flat, rounded, textured or tall? Whatever your next project...